You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. It's a reading of a sets of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled Inner Reading and Inner Hearing and another set called How to Achieve Existence in the World of Ideas. That's the one I'm on, the second one. And this is uh, Lecture 8 in the book entitled Human Beings as Illuminators of the Cherubim, Heaters of the Seraphim, given in Dornach on December 19, 1914. Today I want to present an observation that, although perhaps it falls outside the sequence of observations we have cultivated here, will be useful for the understanding of the whole. How human beings can receive into their knowing and their world of ideas what is real in the world is an old, old question. For us the question is not so burning as it is for people who are not in our spiritual scientific movement because we actually know that the possibility exists for us to live our way up into the spiritual worlds and, by penetrating into the spiritual worlds, gain certainty about true being, about a true reality behind the external reality lying before us on the physical plane. Only starting now and continuing on into the future will humanity as a whole be able to pull itself up to such a viewpoint of out-of-body knowledge. Thus, the question of how one can receive knowledge, being, and reality in the world of ideas will will for a long time continue to have an infinitely great significance. For us to become somewhat informed about this question is important because we must attempt to seek an understanding with those who still stand outside our spiritual movement. We must be able to provide information about the riddles and questions that those who have not yet approached this spiritual movement feel when they hear one or the other result of spiritual science. The question I am thinking of is, precisely the deepest, the most tragic question humanity has asked itself thus far. For however deeply philosophical and other scientific knowledge has been cultivated, in the end the question comes from a human disposition of the heart and works on the whole human mentality and mood. Human beings, let us start with this, wake up in the morning from a world that must remain unknown and puzzling if they are not familiar with anthroposophy. They wake up and they think about the world they enter with awakening. In these thoughts they want to acquire what one can call a world view. Those who really approach these things through feeling with their whole soul, in this case, feel something of the weakness of intellectual life, of conceptual life. They feel, one could say, that they really are condemned to live within themselves in concepts above the processes of the exterior world and that they have to make these concepts for themselves. 
and they find, as always, that these concepts remain, to a certain extent, only concepts, and are not powerful enough to encompass real inner being. People feel this weakness of conceptual life, especially when they ponder the concepts of memory. We bring up from periods of our past what we have lived through factually and experientially. We bring up some memory and conceive of it as behind us, perhaps a long time ago. And here we must also recognize that we have the remembered experience only as an idea, and an idea does not have the power to conjure up reality anew. That is one place where we get a really true sense of how powerless human beings are, in a way, when they are faced with full-blooded, unedited reality in their conceptual life. Another is when we enter the world of creative fantasy. In that world we call up before our soul images of the beautiful, of what satisfies us. But we can sense that we are not in a position, in relation to what we conjure up in our fantasy, to push our way into true being. More materialistically inclined people start out from the feelings one can have about this world of fantastic images. They say, quote, if you people make up ideas about a higher spiritual world, about God and the spirit world, what guarantees that these ideas are anything more than fantasy images? What guarantees for you that with these ideas, however wonderful the rapture they create for you may be, you get through to a world of true reality? Close quote. What lies at the basis of these feelings about the powerlessness of conception of the formation of ideas has led to the thousand-year-old philosophical struggle about how human beings can get through to a reality with their concepts and ideas. There are enough philosophical directives in this area, even if we ignore the extreme skepticism that believes a satisfactory answer to this question a satisfactory solution to the riddle of human mental life, has not yet been found. Certainly, people can walk past these world riddles with a certain intellectual comfort. But those who stroll by consciously, who live consciously with these questions, will feel that dissatisfaction in the face of this world riddle makes waves in their astral body and elicits certain moods in relation to the world melancholic moods. Moods can set in through which one helps oneself with cynicism. However, such a sidestepping of the world riddles can certainly not lead to a real satisfaction in one's inner soul life. We face the necessity of approaching these world riddles just as we must approach many other things. We must look into the essence of human nature and ask, Where does this riddle come from? Why does it exist? That it can be felt in a vastly tragic way has been shown by certain philosophers who were actually in despair about the solution of the riddle and spoke of a divinity that leads humanity astray in the chaos of worldly appearances. A divinity which has so disposed human nature that it cannot arrive at a satisfactory conception of the world. Let us remember something that has been discussed several times in different connections. 
but which can be particularly useful in relation to these world riddles. I have often spoken of what our thought, sense, and conceptual life actually is. I have said that it is basically a kind of reflection. <clears throat> it is in fact the case that with the human being we have to do with what I want to indicate here approximately in this way. Here's a picture. This is the physical body. Outside it, outside the physical person, the sole spiritual nature of the human being lives, as it were, poured out into the endless universe. But during the day, in daytime waking life, this same sole spiritual being extends itself into the sole physical entity, and thereby a reflection arises. And this reflection is actually what we sense as the content of our daytime wakeful life. Really, our body is like a mirror. And just as we do not see the mirror, but what is reflected in it, what we see when a person is awake is fundamentally not what is happening in the body, but rather what is reflected in the body of the outer physical world. However, insofar as we are inside the body in waking daily consciousness, our eye, what we are as soul beings, is in fact basically also present in this world of mirror images. For the world all around us is Maya. It is a sum of mirror images. Our waking capital I is inside this sum of mirror images, and as beings on the physical plane, we are basically nothing other than a reflection among reflections. Let me make this clear and ask, insofar as we are on the physical plane, what remains of our whole life of concepts if we extinguish daytime consciousness? The I goes out with it, and if the I is not reflected, as in deep dreamless sleep, it too is extinguished. And if we awaken and have the world of reflections before us, our I is also inside this world of reflections so that we, in so far as we are living on the physical plane, can have nothing of ourselves other than a reflection. <clears throat> we pass through the world as beings on the physical plane and have nothing of ourselves other than a reflection. We live in the world, but as far as we are conscious of ourselves, we do not have the living reality before us but rather the reflection of this living reality. We live as a reflection among reflections. And what we learn to recognize through spiritual science, that we live as a reflection among reflections, as maya among the parts of the greater maya, is sensed by people when they feel the powerlessness of all spiritual experience in the face of full-blooded reality. We do not say to ourselves in ordinary life that we are a reflection among reflections, but we feel it. We feel it above all when we feel, quote, quote, how can I reach full-blooded being with this mere reflection? Close quote. Let us be clear what is there. Imagine you have before you a reflective wall. It reflects back what is spread about the room, for example a table. 
However, what you see is not the table, but rather the reflection of the table. Imagine you wanted to go into the reflection, take the table out, and put something in its place. You would not be able to do that, because you cannot put a plate or soup bowl on the reflected table. It is just as impossible to put a plate or a soup bowl on the reflected table as it is to derive the essence of the soul's immortality from what human beings experience on the physical plane and have around themselves in a waking state before birth and death. For the real soul is immortal. It is not its reflection, which we experience on the physical plane. Think about that. Human beings yearn to know what is constantly hidden from them, and which, while they are on the physical plane, shows them only a reflection. The philosophies of all ages have striven to draw reality out from the reflections. They have sought to prove immortality from reflections. They have taken on the duty, symbolically speaking, of fetching the table out of the reflection, putting it in the room and placing plates and bowls upon it. When we read philosophies that are fecundated by spiritual science, they appear to us as futile efforts of this sort. If you go through my book titled The Riddles of Philosophy, you will find the story of how since the beginning of humanity's philosophical struggle, philosophy has made an effort to take the table out of the mirror and put plates and soup bowls on it. Therefore, it is necessary now that we have a spiritual scientific movement to add a concluding chapter, showing that what was there before must be completed by spiritual science, which is involved not with reflections, but with realities. <clears throat> now you could ask if we need to read that sort of book, since for what purpose should we occupy ourselves with the futile struggle of humanity? Why should we take philosophy into consideration at all, since it concerns itself only with the futile effort of humanity? But that is not how things are, not how things are at all. What we do when we immerse ourselves in what, from a certain point of view, is otherwise a futile struggle, is nonetheless something infinitely important, something that can be replaced with nothing else. Philosophy will perhaps always remain unfruitful, as far as knowledge of the immortal nature of the soul, the spiritual world, and of the divine is concerned. But it will not remain unfruitful for the unfolding of certain human powers and the further development of certain human abilities. Just because philosophy as such proves unsuitable to reach the things I have mentioned, because it remains to a certain extent dull in relation to them, it strengthens the human soul all the more. And if it cannot deliver knowledge, it still, because it is a concentrated life of thought, prepare the soul to make itself suitable to penetrate the spiritual world. Prepare, yeah. What we gain through the practice of philosophy raises us into the spiritual world more than anything else. Precisely because no powers for the attainment of real knowledge are wasted, all powers are applied to the uplifting of human abilities. 
However, we must accept from this observation that experience on the physical plane, because it is an experience in images, has something unreal, something untrue, and that we, fundamentally, while we live our way into the philosophical world, live through something unreal on a soul-spiritual level. But does the fact that we experience the soul-spiritual on the physical plane as something unreal have a meaning, then? Can we find some wisdom of the world order in it? We must ask ourselves such a question. And to answer this question, we must place some of the insights of spiritual science before us. When, through meditation and concentration, individuals have made a little progress by strengthening their soul-spiritual experience, they can pass over into an experience that is, in a way, a waking sleep, a state of living within the spiritual world. The first experience they then have when they are at the moment of approaching initiation, will be an experience of moments when, as if glittering and flickering, and as if in a dream, the spiritual world penetrates their consciousness. This is something that they really know afterward, when they realize they have experienced something of the spiritual world. Usually pupils of initiation pay too little attention to this experience, Otherwise, they would have an easier time making progress. If human beings did not lose consciousness in sleep, they would live in the spiritual world during the whole period from going to sleep to waking up. Then they would really be in a world of the objective weaving of thoughts the whole time. Those who follow title How to Know Higher Worlds carefully arrive relatively soon at the realization that on awakening they are breaking the surface, as if they had been swimming under the sea and now rise up to the air, they break the surface, as if they had woven with their soul experience in a world of pure thoughts. That is how it is, as if you are still left to sort out the last shreds of this experience upon awakening. This experience can make a great impression, although it is usually immediately lost and very hard to fix in the memory. But it is important for those who wish to make progress to ponder precisely those moments of awakening. For then the awareness arises that before they had awakened, they were with their astral body, inside a weaving, objective world of thought and that when they dove down into the physical body, they collided with their physical embodiment, which then reflects back what they had lived through during the whole night, so that initially it glitters in the soul. This consciousness can come into being and should be heeded, and it is exceptionally important that it come into being. When you have such a consciousness, you begin to know why it is difficult to actually receive the thoughts that you live through during sleep and during initiation into the physical world, into physical thinking, because you live with your thoughts in an entirely different way outside the body than within it. To make that clear to ourselves, we want to look at the moment of awakening and the state of being awake. 
When you awaken, you plunge with your soul-spiritual nature into your physical embodiment. That you live on there in the weaving of thoughts is not surprising, for you have lived inside the weaving of thoughts throughout the whole night in sleep. What happens is as follows. Imagine, parenthesis, I will draw it schematically, and there's a drawing, close parenthesis, that you are diving from outside down into the physical body. I will draw it only in respect to the head. While you are not yet within it, but still there, on the outside, you are there in a wonderful world of weaving thoughts in which the spirits of the next higher hierarchy are developing their activity. Before you awaken, you are with your soul's spiritual experience in the world of the angels, the archangels, the archai, and so forth. Just as in the physical world you are among animals, plants, and minerals, you are with the higher hierarchies, inside them, during sleep. And this being inside them, this working of the higher hierarchies on your soul being, occurs especially with the powers of thought which rule there. <laughs> and now you dive down into your physical body. While you are diving down into the physical body, you concentrate your thoughts so that they are restricted to the small fragment of space that your head encloses. So you must draw together in a very concentrated way what is spread out. What happens then? is that the life of thoughts withdraws inside, dives down into the nervous system. The life of thoughts is shifted, in fact, through the senses, into the nervous system. And what happens then? Then physical substance is seized continuously by thought experience. And stuffing a thought into the physical has to a certain extent a killing effect. While you grasp a thought in your physical body, you are actually killing something in your nervous system. Slaying is even a correct word for it. We think something. After a certain time, we realize what is there, inside us. As many nerve corpses are now within us as the number of thoughts we harbored. What remains behind when we have thought something is really nothing but corpses. So when we go to sleep in the evening, we must turn our physical body over to itself so that it can get rid of the thought corpses we have created during the day through our thoughts. <laughs> must these thought corpses be there? Yes, they must be there, for they are actually the imprints of thinking. And if we could not form these thought corpses, we would have thoughts just as unconsciously by day as in the night. During the night we are inside the thoughts weaving in the spiritual world. No physical body then stands at our disposal into which we can impress thought corpses. During the night thoughts go away immediately and dissolve in the life of all thoughts. That is the difference. We can hold on to thoughts during the day because we turn because they turn into corpses which we bury in the physical body. Then the life of thought becomes hardened, and this hardening brings it about that we can consciously pursue a life of thoughts. That 
is exactly the process. There you have once again something of the way in which we can show how materialism misses the target. Materialists believe they must seek the cause of thinking in what goes on inside, in the corpse process. But what is accomplished there is in reality a process of secretion of thought, a corpse process, and the nervous system is there so that the process of secretion can be produced through the activity of thought. Bodily physiology investigates what thinking leaves behind, what it cannot use, what it rejects. However, something takes form through physiology during waking daytime life that we can call the dying out of thinking in the physical body. The thought forces one develops will be used to produce, so to speak, copies, impressions of themselves. Then the thought forces go into these copies. During the night, when we live in a general sea of spiritual existence, they do not go into copies of this sort. This is because we can form no copies in normal life without initiation. The thoughts dissolve into this general sea. When we want to take hold of them in the morning, they are in fact dissolved. Then not even memory can hold them. When we conceive the process very exactly, we can say that some sort of thought process is developing. While it penetrates our body, it produces products of separation in the nerves. However, before it produces the separation products, it reflects itself. Before it passes over into the body and physical activity, it first reflects itself. What this activity calls forth is reflection. Imagine you are looking at an object through your eyes, or hear a noise or notes sounding together in harmony through your ears. The harmony is outside, it penetrates into the ear. A process arises in the auditory nerves, corpse formation and separation. And what you hear is the sound that is cast back actually an inner echo. In this we are, in our everyday lives, entirely in a world of reflections, and our own existence is woven into this world of reflections. We could conceive our true being if we could feel ourselves swimming outside our bodies in spiritual existence, if we could feel that now one of the angels is taking hold of us, that in what we are now weaving in, we are going up into the realm of the angels. We are passing over into the realm of the archangels, into the realm of the primal forces, and so forth. Then we would feel ourselves born into the realm of the higher entities. We would feel the immortality of souls and know it is true that these beings carry events in the world from world epoch to world epoch that they are carrying us from world epoch to world epoch. But human beings do not perceive this in ordinary life. We dive down into the physical body, and the experience of our own self in true being dies off during life in the physical body. Only the world of reflections remains.
We must therefore cast light deep into the process of cognition and wish that an awareness of the nature of this process would really take hold of the present age. For knowledge that the world is a sum of reflections and that real being lies behind it is already an ascent to where humanity should really be led by spiritual science. We can therefore say no more or less than this. People enter the physical plane, and when they do so, they are in fact transported from the world of reality into a world of unreality, into a world of mere images. And we must feel the entire weight of this knowledge when we perceive and imagine. So, we can say that when the spiritual beings delivered us into the physical plane, they fetched us out of the world of true reality and transported us into a world of unreality. And we actually recognize this first as a fact from the context of the spiritual world, although not yet of the world plane. We recognize it as a fact of the world plane when we ask the question, quote, Why are we, insofar as we are beings of the real physical plane, transferred into a world of unreal images? Close quote. Why? Let us assume that we have not been moved to the physical plane, so that we have before us not images, but realities. What does that actually mean? That would mean that when we stand perceiving and facing the physical plane, and hear, for example, a relationship of sounds, the effect of the relationship of sounds would go into our ear and into our auditory nerves and effect a transformation there. If we were simply designed to enjoy what occurs in the auditory nerves and not to have the ability to project it up into our ideas, then we would be inside reality. We would not have images but realities. That is, however, not the case. We are really cast out of the world of realities and transferred into a world of images, into a world of unrealities. If we were really in a world of realities, then we could never have the possibility of giving reality to a world ourselves. For in a world of reality we cannot bestow reality ourselves. An object I take in my hand from without is something. It is not only an image, the object is something. As little as I can move the table I see in the mirror, just as little can I do anything real with the world that is given to me only in images. But when it is a matter of creating realities ourselves, it is actually correct that we live in a world of images. For although the images have no reality, we can bestow reality upon them. Do we actually do that? Yes, we do that. In one area of our life we do that. We do that when we act morally. The moment moral impulses make their way through our soul life, we create something and put it into the world, something that would not be there without us. When we form a concept of the world, we have only images. When we act morally, we put realities into the world. We would never arrive at the point of living morally in a world that came to meet us as already self-sufficiently real. 
for in that case we would, in respect to what we wanted to do morally, run up against the world everywhere. <coughs> Consider the animals. Animals experience the world entirely differently than people. They do not experience it as a world of images, but rather as a world of true realities. For that reason animals cannot develop morals. Human beings can develop morals because they can themselves introduce moral impulses into the world, a world which is otherwise only one of reflections. What human beings make flow into the world as moral impulses flows into the world as a reality coming out from them into the world. The gods have set us out on the physical plane and turned our spiritual, excuse me, spiritual experience into a world of unreality so that we arrive at the position of introducing moral impulses into unreality as reality. There you have creation, ex nihilo, creation out of nothing through ideas, which are, in fact, only images, only unrealities. If we once again observe a person sleeping, we can say that insofar as that person is outside the physical and etheric bodies, he or she is experiencing the world of weaving thoughts into which the beings of the higher hierarchies have been woven. However, something else penetrates and flows through this world. What is it? The beings of the higher hierarchies are not merely entities of thought. They are real beings. They have substance. And what they have as substance we experience now, not in our thought, but in our will. Particularly in the will when it is ruled by love. In our will when we introduce moral impulses into the world, which otherwise is a world of images for us, we bring down the substance of the higher beings into our worlds. What we really do out of moral impulses is nothing other than bringing down the substance of the beings of the higher hierarchies into our world. Our thoughts, when we are living with our soul's spiritual nature in the physical body after awakening, are mirrored in a part of our body. They are products of the sedimentation, so to speak, of waking thought life formed in the nervous system. The nature of moral impulses, which basically come from the nature of the higher hierarchies, enters into our whole body, penetrates our entire being, our entire organism, and not just the nervous system. Thus the human being can be presented to a certain extent as a twofold entity, as the human being of nerves, and beside it the entire remaining physical human being, into which streams everything that lives on in moral impulses. However, when we are submerged in our physical body, we come out of the world of spiritual realities. While we are submerged in our physical body, emerging from the world of thought, thoughts flutter and glitter as they reflect images, forming thought corpses in the nervous system. Thoughts live in us, but they are not living beings in us, they are reflected and what we perceive as a kind of reading of thought corpses. But these thoughts that reflect themselves are living things, and that has great significance in the world order. 
When someone stands before you and you look at them and become aware that they perceive and think, that what is within them as a weaving of thoughts goes into their nervous system, reflects itself in every perceivable thing in sounds and colors, what is going on with the spiritual light that is going into that person, making impressions on the nervous system? What is going on with the impressions that arise there? Look, there come the cherubim. They collect the light and use it for the further world order. And all of us are lights set out in the world order. While we think, perceive, and form concepts, we are the lights of the cherubim in the world order. Just as a light illuminates the space here in the physical world, so are we the lights in the spiritual world for the cherubim. While we are thinking, light appears in us. The light of thoughts radiates from us, and that illuminates the world in which the cherubim live. When we carry into our body from the world of the hierarchies the substances from which moral impulses are born, and these penetrate our whole organization, will impulses, actions follow. Everything we do happens because will impulses are active in us. Then what is going on in the external world through us, insofar as it is a moral action, is collected by the seraphim. And this moral activity is the source of warmth for the entire world order. Under the influence of people who act immorally, the seraphim freeze. That is, they receive no warmth with which they can heat the whole cosmic world. Under the influence of moral action, the seraphim obtain the forces through which the cosmic world order is preserved, just as the physical world order is preserved through physical warmth. You see now the world view that spiritual science gives us is becoming very real. It brings us to the awareness that when you think, when you form concepts, you are, you are the ignited light of the cherubim. When you act, when you do something, when you unfold your will, then you are the source of warmth, the source of fire of the seraphim. When we walk through the world, we are conscious that we are not useless good-for-nothings, but exist inside the world order for the benefit of the entire world order. And we are conscious that we also have it within our power to make the world a source of darkness. For if we want to be dull and blunt and not to think, then we increase the darkness. And the result is that the cherubim have no light. If we are bad and immoral, we increase the cold in the whole world order and the seraphim have no warmth. Spiritual science does not give us mere theories, as external science does if it is not practical science that leads to technical application. Spiritual science gives us something through which we learn to know what we, as human beings, are within the entire world order. What follows, then, from spiritual science is the essential, what is important. It is an exalted feeling of responsibility in respect to being human. We feel what duties we human beings have toward the cosmos. 
we feel that we can be either human beings in the proper sense or in the improper sense, that we can make our own contribution either to darkness and cold or to light and warmth in the cosmos. We would like to bring spiritual science into the world, especially with the practical goal that it takes hold of people's hearts. For we can be certain that then spiritual science will really be in a position to produce a new attitude of soul and thereby an entirely new form of human experience on earth and in the entire universe. So that experience not only delivers knowledge, but also becomes a source of true, genuine life forces. We wish that spiritual science be taken up properly and deeply by those who feel drawn to it. For spiritual science is still taken all too frequently as something external, as if like some other body of knowledge, it should satisfy curiosity or, let us say, a greed for knowledge. However, the seriousness with which spiritual science is introduced into the world must grow. This is what our time needs so badly, not merely the belief in the spiritual world, but also the possibility to position oneself in relation to the spiritual world so that the human soul is really inclined toward the spiritual world. And just as an infant sucks nourishment from its mother's breast, so the human soul can suck the stuff of life for a new form of earth experience by knowing oneself within the spiritual order from what spiritual science can open up for it. Only when the relationship of the human being to spiritual science is suffused with this magical breath of sense and feeling will one understand spiritual science in its truest, most intimate form as a seed of life. This seed must take root, especially among those who participate in a common task of spiritual scientific endeavors. Why should this building of ours be any different, then, from what we are participating in, especially those who are working on it, namely a confluence of the attitudes that spiritual science awakens, that is tremendously important and significant? If the building is put up in this frame of mind, then it will not be only a dry structure with its forms. It will also be something those who have worked on it have built in loving creativity, in true collaborative creativity. What these people have made to flow into the building, what they have left behind in this building, be it even the slightest activity, even an activity with only a loose connection with the building, is directed in love for what the building should be. And if it flows out of the human attitude that seeks to mount up into the cosmic order, then this building will be something that is not merely a dead thing, but rather a living thing, a truly living thing. That is, indeed, the secret of our thought corpses, that we can for a certain time still bring them back to life over and over again. The other side, that of memory, I discussed last time that what thoughts have produced in us as thought corpses, as human corpses, remain behind on earth and can be brought back to life through soul forces applied later. And when a memory rises to the surface, that which is only a thought corpse radiates in us for a while, alive once again. 
Let us work on making our building in the human order something similar, so that those who come to look at it are unconsciously transported into that sphere of love with which it was constructed, for then it will be not merely a context of dead forms, but something that when people look at it becomes enlivened like the thought corpses of memory. And it will be true then for all eternity that through the way we have worked on it, this building will be something that can be enlivened over and over again by those who encounter it. While we allow these thoughts to work on our soul, we gain a living relation to this building of ours, a living relationship which humanity truly needs while it lives its way from the present into the future. For much will not be allowed to remain a dead corpse. It will be obliged to live. But will only be able to live because a new attitude arises, which must come as a result of spiritual science and of spiritual knowledge. The end of Lecture 8